Hello, listeners. I'm Logan McLean, and this is OJT on the Job Training. It's a podcast where I, a journalism student, practice my craft by interviewing passionate people about their projects. Daisy Dalton is back today to continue her story about overcoming addiction after moving to British Columbia. Since cutting clean, she's been working as a pharmacy technician. We talk today about her plans to become a qualified pharmacist, how she wants to give back, and what it means to come out on the other side. So you mentioned that, uh, like you've completely, uh, it's given you a new outlook and you value the experience because of what you plan to do in the future. Tell me a bit about what you were hoping to do. Um, yeah. So at the moment I am, uh, doing some upgrading. Um, my days are filled with chemistry and calculus. (laughs) Um, so I'm hoping to, um, go back to university and uh, get my degree in uh, pharmacology. Um, so I want to become a pharmacist. And uh, I also want to uh, take as many courses as I can just regarding, um, you know, mental health and addiction. Um, and so I want to kind of use my pharmacy degree uh, to help those people, um, you know, that were in the same position that I am or was rather. Um, I work in a pharmacy now. I'm a, a technician and, um, you know, I, I did work at one pharmacy that was right across the street from the shelter that I used to sleep at. And they did a lot of like harm reduction prescriptions and stuff like that. Uh, Suboxone, uh, methadone, things like that. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that is an integral point of care for these people that isn't really being taken advantage of. Um, you know, I think that a pharmacist can be a really good um, uh, guide towards uh, sobriety and and stuff like that. And I think that having, you know, a, a pharmacist or even any type of addictions personnel uh, that's been through that and that knows those struggles... Uh, I think that's absolutely essential when it comes to harm reduction. What can a pharmacist offer specifically? Um, so, I mean, I, f- I feel like a pharmacist often has um, kind of a unique relationship with a patient. Um, you know, as a doctor, often appointments can feel kind of rushed. You know, they're rushing you in, you're rushing you out. Uh, they maybe uh, a doctor might actually talk to you for five minutes of your appointment, right? About one thing, too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And so pharmacists really have that unique moment um, when they're dispensing the medication to uh, to talk to the patient and to check in with them um, as pharmacists do a lot of uh, medication reviews and things like that. So they'll, you know, sit down with a patient and they'll take that time and go through, you know, a list of the medications they're on, how they're feeling, if these medications are working properly, um, and things like that. And so I feel like within a a pharmacist's scope of practice, there's a lot of room um, for these addiction services, um, Especially when, you know, they're dispensing methadone and and things like that. A part of dispensing methadone is being able to read these people a little bit and, you know, because you can't dispense methadone to them if they're uh, already high on an opiate or something because they could overdose. Um, And so you really have to be aware of those things. Um, and so I just feel like it's a it's an interesting point of uh, of care that isn't really uh, used to the best of its abilities 
currently. And so I want to try and do something to change that and, um, you know, just be another point of, of care uh, when it comes to harm reduction and another point of support as well, because I feel like a lot of the times patients don't really feel that same trust and rapport uh, with their doctor because, you know, doctors can be kind of intimidating. They're very smart. They're very uh, proper often. Um, so I feel like as a pharmacist, especially a pharmacist with, you know, tattoos and, and colored hair, uh, I might be a little bit more approachable in that way. Um, and so I want to kind of use that relationship to help people. You mentioned social work in our when we talked recently, would that you mean that <clears throat> that being tied into the pharmacy work? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I've considered maybe getting again. I I know sort of what I want to do. I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there yet, education right. wise. Um, but I do want to try to tailor my education, my my pharmacy education around um, addiction and. You know, I want to try and take as many uh, courses as I can regarding, you know, indigenous health and, and addictions and, and things like that that will um, kind of strengthen my bond with the community um, mm. and maybe give me a, a different perspective that's not just coming at things from, uh, you know, a very logical pharmaceutical way that I find a right. lot of, of medical professionals kind of approach those situations. So I want to try to come at it um with a rounded view, I guess. And so I think that, you know, having training in mental health and addictions, as well as real life experience with those things. Um, yeah, I feel like that might uh, change things a little bit. I think that makes sense. I've often gone to a pharmacist, uh, especially when I was living in Halifax, they had a 24 hour pharmacy and I'm, I am uh definitely somebody who gets a twinge somewhere and convinces himself he has a new disease that didn't exist anywhere in the world before. So <laughs> I hear that, Mr. Hypochondriac. Many a pharmacist has saved me from going to the emergency room at two in the morning. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the, the, the training really that pharmacists actually have, uh, you know, and some of them you know, because of course, as a pharmacist, you need to have uh, malpractice insurance. And if you were to like give someone medical advice and then something happened to them as a result of that medical advice, um, you could be sued and things like that. So, you know, pharmacists are very unique in how far they want to take um, their practice. Like I, some pharmacists won't even dispense narcotics because they just don't want anything to do with it. Um so and it also differs uh by province and stuff what the scope of a pharmacist actually is uh for instance in alberta uh pharmacists can prescribe antibiotics and birth control and things like that whereas in other provinces we can't do that you mentioned before to me <laughs> that's that's one of the cardinal sins of uh broadcast talking about the stuff that happened before the interview no of one course. was there for that logan <laughs> um <laughs> You used to work at a pharmacy that dispensed methadone, suboxone, stuff like that. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that experience? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the interesting thing with uh, with those types of patients is that you generally see them every day um, because they, they have to come in for like a daily witnessed injection or sorry, not injection, um, uh, 
woo, a daily witnessed uh, ingestion, rather. And um, so, you know, you really get to know these people. You see them every day, whereas most patients you see, you know, every 30 days or even every 90 days. Um, and so, yeah, I, I obviously I'm not a pharmacist yet, so I can't be the one that's dispensing the methadone. Um, but just through, you know, seeing these patients every day, I found a lot of them I was able to really create a nice rapport with. Um, whereas, you know, I did find uh, some other people that work in those situations um, are maybe a little bit judgmental. They maybe don't understand certain things. Um, I had one patient that I'll never forget. He was a very, very lovely gentleman. Um, and, you know, he he would come in for his, for his methadone every day, or rather Suboxone, I guess, in this case. And... Um, there was one day we were running a little bit behind. Um, we, he had to wait, you know, 15, 20 minutes for, for his dose. And he got a little frustrated about that. Um, and, you know, a lot of times when you see someone getting frustrated at the wait times at a pharmacy, it's because they're entitled and they want their prescription right now because they have things to do and what have you. Um, but in a case like this, what I see immediately... Um, is that his body is about to go into withdrawal. He's terrified. He doesn't want that to happen. Um, you know, so he's having this actual physical response of anxiety, of fear. Um, and that's manifesting as, you know, being irritable and, and frustrated. Um, and so I, I remember talking with my coworkers after the fact and they were like, oh, wow, that guy, he ended up yelling at me, um, and kind of flipping out. And after the fact, you know, my other coworkers said, oh, well, how dare he talk to you like that? And da, da, da. And they were quite, um, not necessarily judgmental, but just approaching it from a way of not understanding the situation. Um, and for me, I was like, no, 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 no. This is what's happening. He's scared. He's going into withdrawals. He's not entitled and like busy, like he has to go to an appointment or something like a lot of other customers. No, he's, he's scared. Um, you know, and he actually ended up calling me, um, an hour or two later and apologizing profusely. He said, you know, Daisy, you're, you're wonderful. And I'm so, so sorry. I just, and I said, no, don't even, don't worry about it. Don't apologize. It's fine. It happens. Let's just move on. Um, but you know, just that, that small example, um, really shows kind of the different perspectives uh, that, that you'll find in not just in a pharmacy, but I think in, in a lot of health professions, um, you know, you'll see these people that only really see the surface level and they don't see that, that underneath part of what's actually happening. And I feel like with my experience as an addict, um, I'm just a lot more in tune to that, you know? Do you feel almost a sense of duty to help people because you've come through it absolutely yeah um i i don't know that i've ever really thought of it like that um but yeah i i feel like because i've been there and you know i know that feeling and i i want the best for these people i want these people to um you know live a a good life and and a happy life um, I don't want to see them ravaged by addiction because at the heart of it, they're, they're really good people, uh, you know, and 
it irks me so much the way that most of society just tosses them aside like you know they're worth worthless um when it's like no they they just have an illness <laughs> you know um but there's so much stigma around it that that I feel like I need to um have this 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 duty almost I need to somebody needs to you know and of course there are hundreds and thousands of of extremely dedicated professionals within um you know the mental health and addiction um faculties and stuff but I just feel like there needs to be more uh people in those positions with a background in it with the experience in it and not just people that have learned about addiction from a book you know so do you find from your position at the pharmacy that the opioid crisis which has been especially bad in BC has that gotten worse since covid started oh absolutely um absolutely uh without the uh, supply of safe drugs um with the borders being closed and whatnot um i mean i don't have the numbers right in front of me but it's been a a, a very very radical shift uh in in deaths a lot more people have died uh even you know i think it was in the first uh six months of the year was almost double um the entire year prior to that uh, you know don't quote me on those exact numbers or anything but it was you know some sort of ridiculous statistic like that that just was mind-blowing to me um did you know anyone personally i know you've mentioned before that you have lost friends uh, before covid has anyone in particular since then though um yeah no, no one that i was you know super super close with or anything um but I, I did have a patient uh, that I knew relatively well um, that, that did die of an overdose death. Um, and, you know, that was very difficult. I've had a, a couple of patients now uh, that I've been close with that have passed. Um, it's never easy. It's always going to be an extremely difficult part of, of the, the job and of the field. Um but I mean, I guess that's what I'm hoping to prevent and to make a difference in, you know, uh, with the stigma on drug use, there's so, so much that goes unnoticed, you know, there's so much that, that could be very easily helped, uh, with a little bit of intervention, but the thought process needs to, to switch around a little bit there. Um, because if it weren't for all of the stigma, accessing care would be so much easier you know do you think the stigma is the main thing that needs to change um no i i, I don't know that i would say it's the main thing that needs to change um i don't know that there is a main thing that right. needs to change i think that there's a lot of smaller things that need to change but certainly that the stigma is uh, is a big part of that it's a way to get people on the same page i guess exactly how do you answer the folks who uh, just write off people with addictions as it being their own fault? Because, yeah, you do have to pick up the bottle or, you know, the needle yourself that first time. What's your answer to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, uh, when you look at why people initially, uh, you know, turn to, to drugs or alcohol or, or what have you, um, like we said earlier, 
a lot of times it's it's kind of the the circumstance right they're they're around people that are doing it they don't really see uh they're in this perspective where they don't see a a life outside of that right maybe their their parents were addicted um you know maybe they have never known anything else or maybe they're turning to it um to console uh you know a, a mental health problem um or some some trauma uh that they don't know how to deal with on their own and of course you know <laughs> accessing uh mental health services in canada is extremely lacking um it's it's not very easy to access these services and again that comes with stigma um you know do do i want to access these services and then be labeled as crazy for the rest of my life uh it is something that i've actually heard people say um so yeah so i do think that the stigma plays uh, a big part in that because it's not it's not just a decision to pick something up there's something leading to that decision there's some sort of pain or or trauma or something that someone is dealing with um you know and to that a lot of people will say oh well i've dealt with trauma too and i'm not an addict different people deal with things in different ways um you know just because you had the privilege of of having uh better resources to deal with that doesn't mean that everybody does and i think that's something that people really need to realize is that your reality is not reality. You know, what may be true for you in your life with your family and your experiences is not the same for everyone. You know, when people grow up without a lot of those things that, that some people take for granted, um, things like addiction can happen, and then you, you're left with these people in this, you know, the world is perfect world, uh, sorry, that was kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> Do you find yourself getting in arguments with people about that sort of stuff a lot? Because um, I've, I've certainly seen you get in a fight or two on the old Facebook. Yeah, I am a pretty blunt person. Um, I don't like to sugarcoat things. I don't like to... I don't know. I, I, I like to uh, defend what I think is right. And so... Oftentimes, if I, you know, if I do see someone <clears throat> uh, claiming these things, and a lot of times it ends up being on, uh, you know, news articles uh, in the comment section and stuff, which I should know by this point to just avoid. Um, <laughs> I can't do it either. And I'm a journalist. Like, oh, well, it's hard. Exactly. You know, it's, I know that, that within my sphere of, of friends, uh, it is a little bit of an echo chamber, you know, because I... Most of the people that I associate with are, uh, you know, people that think similarly to me. And so it is interesting to go into those comments and be reminded that, oh, my God, this is what the majority of people actually think. Um, it's depressing sometimes. It's infuriating sometimes. But I don't think that those people are ever going to change their minds about these things if they don't know. And if... You know, that can be put on them a little bit of, well, oh, they maybe they need to do more research. Um, but, you know, sometimes you need to just approach things with kindness and, you know, um, amicability and just try to explain kind of like what I just said, that, you know, just because you have this one perspective on, on something because your life has always been this way 
uh, doesn't mean that everybody is going to have that same perspective, right? And, you know, sometimes I myself get frustrated and uh, things like that, but I do try to avoid just angry arguments. Um, You know, I'm always down for a discussion, uh, but if it just turns into the person, you know, not wanting to listen to anything I have to say, um, then it's usually, all right, well, fucking whatever, bye. (laughs) You know, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do to change your mind because you're so set in this opinion that, you know, what, what, what could I possibly do to change your mind? Probably nothing. So many bad faith arguers out there, too. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, one of my least favorite things to see ever is, um, you know, well, why why did dope addicts get Narcan for free and my insulin is $600 a month? Blame the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's... And, and I've seen that, uh, that image with the Narcan part crossed out and just say... So it just says... Why is my insulin $600 a month? And, you know, because that's stuff that people don't necessarily understand either is if if you're, uh, you know, going into diabetic shock or something and you go into the hospital, well, yeah, they're going to they're going to treat you. They're going to save your life. Um, it's the same thing with uh, Narcan. You know what I mean? It's an emergency uh, thing to, to save someone's life in that moment. It's not and an ongoing medication, you know? Uh, (laughs) The two are just, it's apples and oranges. They're not comparable. But people don't realize that, right? Because they don't understand enough about addiction or what Narcan even is, you know? So how has the BC provincial government's handling of COVID and the opioid crisis combined been? Um, not very well. (laughs) Um... I don't know. I mean, I think they're they're trying to do what they can. Um, but like a lot of the government's COVID responses, um, they weren't prepared. <laughs> they, you know, tried to implement things really quickly without really, um, you know, allowing time to work out the logistics of it. Um, and that has meant, you know, moving tent cities around, um going in and and literally packing everyone's tents and everything they own up into a truck and and moving them and and, or getting rid of them um you know moving people into into hotels none of it really has been all that effective um there is obviously with covid and distancing laws uh, regulations rather um there's been a lot of people using alone Um, as opposed to, you know, where they might usually be using in a group. Um, but because of distancing and because, you know, they've, they're given this, this hotel room where they can lock themselves away from the world. Um, a lot of people have ended up just using alone and a lot of these deaths, uh, are completely preventable. Um, but, you know, I feel like that was something that the government kind of failed to consider. And uh, so I'm not saying, you know, that the government led to all of these deaths. Obviously, it's it's extenuating circumstances with COVID and everything. But I don't believe that their response has been nearly as effective as it should be. Um, and I think that really speaks to how much things need to change uh, perspective-wise when it comes to the opioid crisis in general. 
what do you mean by that last part? What was sort of the government's perspective? What what message did they say? What what were they saying? You know. Sorry, what do you mean by that? Um, when the government does things like moving people out of a tent city, they've always got a spokesperson or the actual official themselves delivering their very particular message that they want to drill in. What were what was their message about the addicts during this? You know, I don't really know. Um, the the government, from what I saw at the very least, um, I didn't really see them them consulting with with addicts at all or really speaking directly to them. Um, from my perspective, it's been a lot of, you know, they kind of decide what they want to do and then they swoop in and, and there hasn't really been a ton of warning, I don't think, towards people in these communities, um, you know, until the the paddy wagons show up, maybe not paddy wagons, but whatever vehicles they were using, uh, you know, show up to pack their shit up. So I don't think there really was very much of a, of a, an, an outreach or, you know, Hey guys, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? Well, you know, what would the best option be for you? Um, I think it was a lot more of just, well, this is what's, what's good for the community at large, you know? Um, and by that, of course they mean, all of the people that are living in houses near them. The NIMBYs. You familiar with that term? NIMBY? Not in my backyard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there was, I remember, a bit of a, an ordeal when schools were getting ready to open again. Um, there was one school that's by Beacon Hill Park, uh, which is a big park in the middle of Victoria where a lot of homeless people go to sleep because it's a large park area, right? It's not... Uh, you know, right by a road or anything. Um, and so I guess there was uh, uh, an encampment nearby to this school uh, and everybody was kind of freaking out about it. Like, oh, well, we can't send our children to this school when these filthy homeless people are throwing needles all over the place. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> what are they supposed to do with their dirty needles then? You know, you, you don't have... Uh, safe disposal sites you don't have safe injection sites that are nearby and accessible um where are they going to put these needles you know a lot of people have gotten angry because needles have been tied to um uh, you know hand railings and things like that um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that is what addicts will often do um when there are no safe disposal sites for needles um you know, so that their needles aren't just scattered around the ground, um, so that they're in a visible place where people aren't just going to step on them without noticing them. So people will just, like, leave them in places where people will see that they don't step on it? Yeah. You know, and of course, there are obviously people who are too high to care. Um, you know, not every addict is, is courteous, of course, but, you know, if there are no... Uh, places for these people to live and to, uh, you know, set up camp and to dispose of their needles, well, what's their option? You know, what is the other option for them? What is your opinion on safe injection sites then? Um, I think they're vital. Um, I think they are extremely important. Um, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, that just makes it okay for these people to just go and do drugs. You know what? They're going to do it anyway. Um this isn't like a fun time, uh, you know, place for them to go and get fucked up. No, it's a place for them to safely do what they're going to do anyway. Um, and it also, 
you know, reduces the amount of uh, needles and stuff that are out and about in, in public. Um, it allows people to uh, have a safe place to inject. So, you know, if they do uh, overdose, there's trained people around them to care for them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's essential when it comes to managing the opioid crisis. Are there some in BC? Uh, yep. Yep. We do have some in BC. Yeah. What does that look like? Um, what do you mean? Like, like, what is it actually? Yeah. What is it? Uh, say I'm struggling with heroin. I want to try getting on or I'm not even getting on methadone. I want to use in a place where, so do I need to sign up? Can I just walk in with my own drugs? Like, how does this go? Um, you know, I've actually never personally used a safe injection site because mm -hmm. I never injected. Um, right. so I'm not a hundred percent how it works. It may vary, um, <clears throat> from site to site. Uh, but generally, uh, you go in, you are provided with, um, injection materials, uh, you know, syringe, needle, um, water, things like that. Um, and then you kind of get, uh, at least in the, the one that I have actually been, near or around um so you get like a little it almost reminds me of those detention desks that would be in the office of, of schools you know it's like a desk with walls around it i definitely of. know nothing about that of course not <laughs> uh i certainly do on the other hand um but yeah no it, it it's sort of like a desk with with walls around it um a lot of times <clears throat> there's like a mirror in front of it um which i believe they do so that you kind of have to look at yourself while you inject um <clears throat> i don't know necessarily if that's effective i don't know enough about it um shame yeah i mean it, it seems a little like that to me but you know maybe it is effective i don't i'm not privy to the research that goes behind it so right. i can't really comment on it but but yeah no that, that's generally what they would look like and then you know of course there's um safe needle deposit bins uh and things like that so you know, it's better than people sharing needles in a park and then tossing them around, right? So did you say they supply needles? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. That would be obviously that's there's one of the safe things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Clean needles. Uh, what about do you have to have like a doctor or maybe a some other kind of authority sign off on this? I don't know. Um that's a very good question, and I don't know. I don't think so, um, you know, because you are bringing your own drugs kind of thing. It's not like a, like you're being prescribed a drug, um, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't see why necessarily you would need a, a doctor or anything to sign off on it, uh, but I don't know 100% how that works because, like I said, I've never actually um, used a safe injection site myself, right. uh, but... From what I've gathered, I, I think you just kind of go and uh, and inject. Yeah. Now, what about a safe supply? Um, yeah, so that's uh, something that certainly has been talked about. Uh, it's something that has been um, done in other countries. Um, I think it is a good idea, given the fact that, you know, there are addicts, there are people who are going to use drugs, and there is not a safe supply of drugs. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, there's always, there's always going to be these people doing the drugs. Um, we can certainly prevent a lot of overdose, de uh, overdose deaths, 
um, if we have a, a safe supply uh, from which to use. Uh, because, you know, then we at the very least know it's not uh, mixed with, with fentanyl, um, with any other things that people like to cut drugs with that could be harmful. Um, yeah. And then people know the exact dose they're getting too, because a lot of overdoses, it's not even that it's mixed with stuff, it's that it's you get bad quality for you know months and then you finally get one good hit. And exactly. Um, and you know, that's another thing when it comes to like a methadone management program. Um, that's why, you know, we need to be able to assess whether or not people are already um, high on an opiate. Um, before we dispense methadone because, you know, if if they were um, already high um, or if they weren't sticking to their, their methadone schedule, um, you know, like if they, let's say somebody gets a, a dose of methadone every day, um, if they miss two days in a row, that script is no longer valid and they need to get a new methadone prescription from their doctor. Um, and the reason for that, and we've had people get angry and stuff with that in the past, um, but if, you know, they're taking this methadone every day, and then they don't take it for two days, and then take it again, well, then they could overdose, uh, because their bodies aren't, aren't ready for that high of a dose. That's part two with Daisy. There's still more to come, but for now, here's the progress report. This is my weekly reflection on hosting, producing, marketing, and all the rest at OJT. After a slow start at The Guardian, Charlottetown's local paper, I'm finally getting published and feeling engaged with Island Life. You can check it all out on ojtpod.ca, but this isn't a plug. I'll do that at the end. It's pretty satisfying to see that byline in the paper. I find I often don't respond the way I expect to good news, and it takes a minute to sink in. But when it does, it feels great to get that feedback. Because that's what it is. Quiet recognition from the editor that I'm doing all right. I'm finding editors aren't always prone to glowing praise. As someone constantly trying to improve, I don't think I'd want it all the time. But as someone who is also needy as hell at times, I definitely need something. And ink on the page is one of those things. I'm at a point with journalism where I'm starting to feel involved in something important. I'm getting a sense of what I'm good at and where the connections are. And man, do the connections start to connect when you get into it on PEI common thing lately is for one interviewee to leave me with a list of people to contact for related but different perspectives. This makes my job a lot easier, especially when I have a name to drop. But more than that, it makes me feel like I'm onto something. I often know at least one person mentioned, and sometimes I've already interviewed them. I'm starting to get a sense of how different communities operate on the island, and a sense of where the lines are, and how not to cross them. One of the key points our Holland College instructors have always repeated is, don't interview one person about one thing. If you're lucky enough to get their ear, and sometimes that can take weeks or only happen at, say, 8pm on Halloween night, you ask them anything they might have useful comments on. So, now my question sheets have an extra section near the bottom for, by the way, do you know anything about, or did you hear about? It is always interesting, let's say, to see the responses, especially when it's about the government. <laughs> People here are usually pretty polite, but when you bring things up like e-gaming, PNP, or the high-capacity well moratorium, watch out. For a place that's lying in the water, there are lots of fiery personalities. Daisy Dalton will be back soon for part three, 
You can follow her on Instagram at later.days, that's D-A-Z-E days. Daisy also suggested listeners check out the Satanic Temple's website and about page at thesatanictemple.com. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at OJT underscore podcast and on Twitter at OJT podcast. The Facebook page is OJT on the job training. You can follow me on Instagram at logan.mclean.75 and on Twitter at loganmclean94. And finally, listeners, please check out my website, ojtpod.ca, for my written stories and photography. The podcast is available there and on all major streaming platforms. Please rate and subscribe and leave a review. Everything helps when getting a podcast off the ground, and if you like this show and want more interesting guests, listener feedback is the best way to help me reach new people and make that happen. This has been OJT, On the Job Training. I'm Logan McLean. Thank you for listening. <laughs>